Good morning. Welcome to worship at Northminster this morning. Whether you are here in person in our sanctuary or viewing this worship service over our YouTube channel, we're so glad you are all with us. If you're visiting with us, we offer you a special welcome and we hope you'll participate in all aspects of our worship service today. And if you're in our sanctuary, that includes participating in communion. God's table is open to all. So just follow the directions in the order of worship or follow the person in front of you and you'll figure it out. It's, it's not, uh, not rocket science. Uh, for all of us here, our first gift to God in this service is our gift of our presence. So to acknowledge your presence and if you're comfortable in doing so, would you please sign and pass the attendance register that you'll find in the hymn book holder on the chairs of the center aisle. We're thankful for, to Peggy Caskey, Peggy's back here, who created the beautiful floral arrangement on the communion table for our worship this morning. And after the service, please feel free to take some flowers to brighten yours or someone else's week. And as always, please review the insert in the order of worship for other announcements and opportunities or check out our newsletter. We welcome Reverend Dr. Carl Gregg back to Northminster today as our guest preacher and pulpit uh, and worship leader. Carl has been the minister at Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Frederick, Maryland since 2012, so almost 10 years now. For seven years, from 2003 to 2010, he was our much-loved associate pastor here at Northminster. He holds a Doctor of Ministry and a Diploma in the Art of Spiritual Direction from San Francisco Theological Seminary, a Master of Divinity from Bright Divinity School in Fort Worth, and a Bachelor of Arts in Religion and Philosophy, cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa from Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. While Carl was at Northminster, he met his future uh, wife, Megan Lasave, who then was the religion editor at the Monroe News Star back when we had a religion editor. Carl and Megan were married in 2017, 2017, 2007, I'll get it right <laughs> in Megan's hometown of Baltimore. And there were a good many Northminster folks who made that trek to, to that wedding and it was a joyous, joyous time. She's an associate professor of English at Frederick Community College. Carl is a meditation teacher training through Buddhist geeks. You'll have to ask Carl, I'm not on it. I knew he was a geek, uh, but, uh, <laughs> and is a featured blogger on, on Patheos. Patheos? Okay. Uh, look in the newsletter and you can find something out about, you can, you can uh, click on these links to Buddhist geeks or Patheos, his, his blog. While at Northminster, uh, Carl had lots of accomplishments. He led us in adopting a long-range plan. He led a number of really engaging book studies and helped us to adopt our church mission from the prophet Micah, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Through his leadership, we also adopted our church logo, the Northminster Chancel Window. Carl created and designed Northminster's first website. He went with us on two visits to our partner congregation in Cuba. You know, when Carl came to us right out of Bright Divinity School, he was, what, 25 years old, and he looked 15. And, uh, 
and in Cuba, they said, he can't be your associate pastor. He's, you know, he, he looks 15. But anyway, uh, <laughs> having come to Northminster right out of Bright Divinity School, he also began learning how to be a pastor, which he has now apparently mastered very well. Carl, welcome back to Northminster. Now Mark Wyndham will bring our minute permissions. Mark. Good morning. Our missions emphasis for the month of May is Med Counts of Louisiana. I was reminded by someone, I won't give any names, Debbie, that I had one minute for the, she said it's called the minute for missions. Well, it's gonna be about two or three, so bear with it, because I got a little carried away when I was putting this together. MedCamps was founded in 1987 and began as a one-week camp for 13 children with severe asthma and allergies on what was then the campus of NLU. Since that time, they've grown steadily in numbers and have expanded programming. The, the program was initially developed as part of the YMCA of Northeast Louisiana. In 1988, the program found a permanent home at Camp Alabama in Sibley. MedCamps is now an agency of the United Way of Northeast Louisiana. They've grown from 13 kids for one week in 1987 to 450 children over a 12-week period in 2019, from serving one chronic illness in 1987 to, to currently serving more than 16. MedCamps has never charged a fee to attend camp, and with the continued support of the community, corporations, and, civi and civic organizations, it allows its mission to continue. Their philosophy is that all people, regardless of medical or special needs, deserve to experience life to the fullest and that camping is an American tradition which epitomizes normalcy and provides participants with a sense of well-being, belonging, accomplishment, and self-worth. Their mission is to provide, at no charge, a medically supervised residential camping experience that supports growth in the physical, social, and emotional aspects of the life of young people with special needs by developing normalcy, confidence, and independence within each participant. You'll notice in the insert to your order of worship that they have an, a list of items which they're needing to further their programs, and I know that any contribution you can make will be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. That sounds like a wonderful organization. I, I sometimes tell my folks, instead of like, a, we do something similar to that, instead of a minute for missions, I tell them, you have 100 words for missions. <laughs> so <laughs> real clear about the, no, that was great. Uh, it is so wonderful to be with you this morning. Being, being back here just reminds me of, of what a truly special place this is. It's, just, it's wonderful to be back. Please join with me in the call to worship. We have come to worship our God whose very being is love. God is Love should always be the lens through which we view and interpret God's continuing revelation. Thanks be to God for minds, hearts, and understanding, and for the freedom to ask questions. May our worship be expressions of love and understanding. 
we gather as one in Christ's love, let us worship God.
A reading from the book of Acts. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice and saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man named Tarsus, from Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come to him and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. This is one of our ancient stories. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God of many names and beyond all naming, awaken us anew to why are we here together? Why we return to this sanctuary week after week. Remind us that we are here because there are not enough places in this world reminding us that we matter. Remind us, God, that we matter not because we are funny or smart or make the best YouTube videos. We matter because you love us. You have always already loved us, even when we can't get up on time or our temper gets the best of us. We are here in this sacred place on this morning to be reminded that we are each loved beyond belief. Open our hearts that we may feel from every direction 
that we belong beyond our choosing. There is nothing you could do to make yourself more worthy of this love and nothing you can do to make yourself less worthy. Your life is simply precious. Each breath in and each breath out, precious. We are here to learn how to hold this much love at the center of our being and our becoming. To let this love be our greeting and our parting, to let it flow from our singing, connect us in our silence. We're here to practice showing up like it counts because we count. To show up with courage and also humility. To feel a part of something larger than ourselves. To be a part of something with weight and consequence beyond our everyday patterns to learn community and responsibility, and to refuse despair, which if you don't need it in this moment, you will someday, to see people choosing kindness and letting go, giving away every blessing we receive, and with gratitude and with great love, we say amen.
Gospel according to John. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to him, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And and though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. The Gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. So when our story opens in Acts, the situation is pretty dire. 
Saul, we are told, is breathing threats and murder against the followers of Jesus. But suddenly, in a flash, everything changes. He sees a bright light and hears a voice from beyond. Interestingly, the text says those around him also heard the voice. You know, you kind of have to check on those things. You're like, am I the only one hearing this? Uh, But they actually didn't see the light, at least according to the text. And then for three days, I think probably archetypally, not coincidentally, the same number of days Jesus was in the tomb, Saul was struck blind. And on the third day, not only was his sight restored, but his worldview had shifted. And that's the piece I want us to go into this morning. The former prosecutor had become a follower of Jesus's way. There's a saying in spiritual circles that we, it's not so simple as saying that we see the world as it is. It's also true in ways that we see the world as we are. That affects what we notice. And the story of Saul who became Paul is an exemplar of this experience. Objectively, the world was the same before and after Paul's Damascus Road experience. But subjectively, he came to see the world in a quite radically different way. So since leaving here in 2010, after spending seven years as your associate pastor, I've now spent almost a decade as a Unitarian Universalist minister. And there may be an interesting takeaway from juxtaposing the total of nine years that I spent as Uh, in preaching Christian sermons, and now almost a decade I've spent preaching in a UU context. If I look at the bookshelves in my office today in Frederick, Maryland, they've really changed over the past 10 years in some particular ways. As a UU, I'm forced to be, for better or worse, a much wider reader. The shelf space in my office now allotted to science and history and politics and dismantling racism and the religions of the world in general and Buddhism in particular have massively expanded. It's exciting that almost anything is fair game in the big tent of Unitarian Universalism as long as it contributes to living well and ethically in our globalized, pluralistic, postmodern world. But I'm grateful as well not only to go wide in UUism, but the time that I had as a progressive Christian pastor to go deep into deeply reading the Bible and going deeply into one tradition of Christianity. As the pastor of Broadview Church in Southern Maryland with the two years right after I left here, I once spent four months preaching chapter by chapter, you know, a week at a time through the gospel according to Mark. And then we spent six months going through chapter by chapter through the gospel according to Matthew and looked a lot at how, you know, the gospel according to Matthew is a little bit different than the gospel according to Mark and, and talking about why that is and why that matters. In contrast to going really deep like that, in my current UU congregation, it shifts quite dramatically from Sunday to Sunday. Last week, I preached about climate justice for Earth Day. Today, while I'm here with you, a Buddhist monk was um, sharing a Dharma talk for the sermon. Next week, I'll be preaching about the life and legacy of Elizabeth Blackwell. So for Mother's Day, I'll be doing founding mothers of Unitarian Universalism. In the 19th century, she was a Unitarian who became the first woman in the United States to receive an MD and to become a doctor. So as my tenure as a UU minister overtakes my time as a Christian pastor, I want to reach back and share with you some of the most important lessons that I'm deeply grateful for of going deep with you for many years in the Christian tradition. And that is how to wrestle deep meaning from any text. Because those of you who have spent a lot of time reading the Bible know that there's some, there's some funky stuff in there, you know, that you're like, I don't know 
about this sometimes. And sometimes it's easier to look at a different text and just decide, you know what, that's antiquated, that's obsolete, we're just gonna skip over that one. That's fair, that's one strategy. Or write something new that feels more relevant for today. We can also do that. I love the tradition in this congregation of sometimes having contemporary readings, right? We're gonna read from the Bible, but we're also gonna read from something that the Spirit has continued to speak over the last 2,000 years. Other times, though, it's well worth going deep, staying committed, and wrestling with a text until it gives you a blessing. And I want to talk about that this morning. I learned a tremendous amount from being regularly tasked with finding meaning from some of the most difficult texts in the Bible. And I'd like to share with you just a few tools of textual interpretation that I learned along the way that you may find useful as well. Some of you you're probably already familiar with, some may be new to you. And far beyond the Bible, there are useful applications for these approaches to textual interpretation. You know, reading any other book, um, films, works of art, reading the Constitution, and more. <laughs> and just like Saul, who became Paul, and suddenly saw the world differently, the world hadn't changed, but he had. The text always remains the same, right? It's the same text. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I remember, uh, was it Tony Campolo once saying, some of you will know that name, uh, he used to say, not only do I believe the Bible's real, I believe the leather this is wrapped in is real. <laughs> like, it's, uh, uh, I talk a lot about Campolo, I can't, can't get off on that. Uh, but so the, the text doesn't change, but the way we can encounter the text differently as we grow and learn and evolve, we see the world not only as it is, but as we are. Do you know the saying that if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Well, I sometimes get the feeling that too many religious folks were handed only one pretty blunt object for interpreting their text's sacred traditions. It's not just Christians, right? You see uh, kind of fundamentalism in all the world's religions. But here's the good news. There truly are a wide array of interpretive options out there. I often think of the image of a hermeneutical Swiss army knife if you will. Uh, hermeneutics, named after the Greek god Hermes, right, was the messenger god. So hermeneutics is about the study of interpretation. How do we interpret well? And hermeneutics offers a big interpretive toolbox containing a wide variety of in instruments useful for different occasions. And I'd like to invite you to come back with me behind the curtain. Let me show you a little bit about how the magic gets made. Imagine with me a big toolbox. You open up this toolbox and it's got three trays. The bottom of the tray is labeled behind. The middle tray, when you open it up, is labeled in. And the top tray is labeled in front of. We can spend a lot of time familiarizing ourselves with all the different tools and all these different trays. Indeed, there are scholars that spend their entire lives just really doing, honing one particular interpretive lens. But I'm going to take you just on a quick tour to give you a sense of how many tools there are to play with. And there are many more beyond what I can detail this morning. So let's start with that bottom tool of the toolbox labeled behind. There you'll find a set of interpretive tools for trying to get a peek behind the text. So you got this text, but these tools can help you get behind it. What was going on when this text was written? Uh, there are many tools again here. I'm going to limit myself just to three of my favorites. So imagine we have a passage of scripture in front of us from any religious text or even a contemporary text, and we want to know what does it mean? Well, we might pick up the tool of historical criticism. 
to try to get a peek again behind the text. What was its original context, right? I sometimes think, you know, the word text comes to us from the word textile. And you like a, a textile, like fabric, you can... You can cut fabric apart, you can, you know, which you can pick a string and unravel it. There are different, just as there are different ways to take apart a textile, there are all these different ways to take apart a text. So what was the context? When was it written? What else was going on in the world at the time? And how might that inform our understanding? Another tool we might try is called source criticism. What sources was that author drawing from? What other text does that author allude to or directly quote from? And what further context does that give us? Or redaction criticism. Uh, redaction criticism, if you ever th when I think about the word redaction, I think about when you see those FBI documents with the big black things that have been redacted. Um, redaction criticism asks, how was this text edited? Among the most interesting biblical examples is that the, the writers of the of Gospels of Matthew and Luke it seems they had copy. They didn't know each other. They were writing separately, Matthew and Luke were. But each of them had on their desk a copy of the Gospel of Mark. And interestingly, Mark is the, the I don't hope this isn't too it's the most poorly written of the Gospels, right? And so Matthew and Luke were aware of this, and, and they both sort of uh, upgrade Mark in particularly Matthean and particularly Lucan ways that give us hints about their own particular perspectives. Uh, so these are a few of the many tools a reader can use to get a peek behind the text. Moving to that middle tray in the toolbox, we find that tray labeled instead of behind, in. So just getting really deep into the text itself. Again, I'll limit myself only to a few of my favorites, such as text criticism. Text critics actually go back to the original ancient manuscripts and compare them. And it turns out there's quite a lot of variation there. Have you ever noticed those tiny, tiny, tiny um, superscripts in your Bible that are like an A or a B, and then you look down, and in really tiny print, it says, other manuscripts say. So text critics are the ones that decide what goes in the other manuscripts say and what goes in the, the main text of the Bible. Uh, so text critics study those differences. Re um, rhetorical criticism plays close attention to who gets to speak in the text, how do they speak, and what such questions reveal. Translation criticism compares all the nuances and shades of meaning in the original language that have been gained or lost over time, or some of the dynamics that, like, Jesus was speaking Aramaic, but the New Testament is written in Greek, right? Because this dude named Alexander the Great conquered the world 300 years before Jesus was born, giving us Hellenism, right? So that, that's why it's in Greek. So you, and, and when we translate from Aramaic to Greek to English, I sometimes think of it as like a Venn diagram, that if you look in a good English dictionary, is there one definition of a word? No, there's so many, and our language changes so much over time. And so you've got this, we both have really excellent translations today, and it is also the case that with every single word you translate, you are gaining and losing meaning. So that just like English, Greek too has nuances of meaning. So we, we make good decisions with translation, but you've also you're gaining, you're losing shades of meaning, and you're gaining and you're gaining shades of meaning with every single word of a translation. So that's a few of the tools that can be used for getting deeply into the text itself and wrestling with it till you get a blessing. The top tray in our toolbox is labeled in front of. So we have behind the text, in the text, and in front of the text. This set of tools focuses on what's happening to us and kind of who's in the room when you're doing the reading. 
Reception criticism, for example, studies not just how this text should be interpreted, it studies how it has been interpreted, how this text has been received, because it also turns out that as the historical and cultural context changes, people have noticed different things about the text. How the text was read you know, in the 300s is different than how it was read in the 500s, is different than the Middle Ages, different than the Reformation. So that redact um, reception criticism studies that. Feminist criticism studies how women's experiences were often overlooked by male commentators and male writers and sort of reads against the grain. Or liberation criticism reads the text with an unapolog unapologetic agenda of inspiring social justice. So it can be both fascinating and exciting to have at hand just the right tool or tools for studying a given text. Sometimes you may need the crowbar of historical criticism, other times the hammer of liberation criticism. If you're curious to learn more, or sometimes the microscope of, of uh, literary criticism or rhetorical criticism. If you're curious to learn more, two good starting points are a book called A Handbook to Old Testament Exegesis by William Brown. Exegesis means drawing meaning out of a text or a book called Searching for Meaning, an introduction to interpreting the New Testament by Paula Gooder. These are both really good introductions that I've given you like nine tools. They're each gonna give you like 20 or 30, and they're gonna take you through and show you a biblical text if you're curious about learning. And we could also spend a lot of time going into sacred reading practices. Some of you will be familiar with like Lectio Divina, reading a text slowly. It's a whole set of those practices for finding meaning in a text. But for now, let's pull together some of the implications of having this growing number of interpretive tools to play with in our own interpretive toolboxes. Come with me just a little bit further through the looking glass and you'll begin to see, as you may have already, that for better or worse, texts do not have one plain meaning applicable to all times and places. Have you ever heard someone ask, what does the Bible say about blank, whatever the issue of the day is? Often the questioner expects a simple response. Well, it's just not possible. The Bible literally means books, plural, right? So some of you know Spanish. The Spanish word for library is biblioteca, right? That comes from the Greek word biblia that gives us Bible. It just literally means books, plural. So the Bible says a lot of things. And if I were, I'm not going to do this, but if I were to chuck this Bible out of the pulpit and let it smack hit the floor, is it going to say ouch? I would be really surprised if it did. That would be cool. Uh, <laughs> The Bible doesn't say anything. We have to read it. And that, I promise you, is a truly profound realization. The more you understand about the vast array of options for how you might read a text, the deeper the rabbit hole goes. And here's the really important part. Because we have agency regarding how we interpret uh, a text, we have real impactful choices to make as to which interpretive tools or tools we may wish to apply. We are arguably, and I would argue this, we are responsible for our interpretation. Said more bluntly, the more one knows about textual interpretation, the less it is when someone tries to blame the text for their hatred, for their prejudice, for their violence. The less the, the Bible made me do it, you know, that just becomes less convincing. Is it really the text's fault, or is it someone's unskillful interpretation to blame? 
have you thoroughly explored behind the text for the fullness of that original context and how the differences from our current context open up gray areas of interpretive possibilities? Have you really done that? Have you tinkered enough within the text to consider all the nuances of language and perspective and detail? Have you invited an increasingly diverse set of people to interpret that text with you. Do you all know the saying that if you're not at the table, you might be on the menu? <laughs> you know, that, that sometimes happens when a diverse enough perspectives aren't represented, that perspective gets excluded. The Yale University New Testament scholar Dale Martin has a succinct way of describing this dynamic. He explores it in a, a quite accessible book, if you want to check it out for yourself. It's called Pedagogy of the Bible. He says that texts don't mean people mean with texts. And he means that at least two ways. He means that we human beings create meaning. We're also mean to each other. We're also cruel to one another with texts, what are sometimes called picking out texts that are clobber texts and try to, to beat each other up. Think of the um, various songs or films or other works of art, though, that have come to mean different things to you at different times in your life. Right? Texts don't simply mean. We don't simply see the world or texts as they, as they are. We see them as we are. We bring things to our reading. And here's, the, um, again, the second part of his text. Uh, you know, it, it's just increasingly less persuasive as you become conscious of this dynamic to scapegoat a text for one's cruelty or meanness. We each have real power, real options, real responsibility for the interpretive choices we make. Martin has said it this way, you are responsible, we are responsible for the truth, the goodness, the morality, and the social effect of how we interpret texts. If your reading is causing harm, it's important to consider whether you have really tried, again, all the interpretive tools in your toolbox for exploring behind, in, and in front of the text. And if, you know, maybe you need a different set of people to hang out with, you know, that's one of the reasons to come to a place like Northminster is it can teach you creative ways and life-giving ways to interpret text. Perhaps the most salient example of textual casuistry in our country today is actually not the Bible, though it's a close runner-up, but actually the United States Constitution. Even a cursory study, go, go and read a bunch of those 5-4 Supreme Court decisions, the controversial ones, and it will expose there's just a giant amount of leeway in how one interprets the text of the U.S. Constitution. As law scholars have shown, it is just not that some, um, some justices are smarter or they understand constitutional law better. No, they're all super crazy smart, right? That's why they're Supreme Court justices. Their decisions, um, their disagreements, though, reflect their differing ideologies, their differing worldviews, their differing life experiences. They don't simply see the Constitution as it is. They see it as they are. I urge you not to believe the propaganda that some justices are activists and others are quote-unquote neutral interpreters. I don't know what that means. There is no neutral interpretation, like you're always coming from somewhere. If you take a step back and look closely, you will find that all humans, from the most conservative to the most liberal and everywhere in between, are always making real interpretive choices. Constitutional originalists, so-called, will try to persuade you that they have the only or best way of interpreting original meanings. But fundamentalist interpretations of the Constitution impress me no more than fundamentalist readings of the Bible. In both cases, the end result tends to be narrow and rigid and antiquated. 
and we just don't have to limit ourselves to one interpretive tool when there's so many hermeneutical toys to play with. When I was growing up in, as a Southern Baptist in South Carolina, I don't, some of you may can relate to this, there's a lot of fear about being accused of picking and choosing. You ever ever hear that? You're, you're picking and choosing, right? In the theologically conservative congregation of my childhood, you didn't want to be perceived as someone who was favoring some parts of the Bible over the others, since allegedly it was all equally important as the infallible, inerrant word of God. Over time, though, I've come to see that everyone picks and chooses. And if we come to accept that we all do have the freedom and responsibility that comes with picking and choosing, then one vitally important decision, it seems to me, is why not choose love? Why are you choosing hatred and division and cruelty? Why not choose love? If we're all responsible for how we interpret the Bible or any other text, why not choose love? Why not select tools that, to the greatest extent possible, will lead to kinder, more compassionate, more inclusive perspectives? Why not choose the interpretive tool for the job that will help increase peace and justice, not merely for some, but truly for all? And importantly, I think that's what Jesus did. Do you remember that passage in Scripture? We didn't hear it this morning, but Jesus was actually asked, what is the greatest commandment? And the context there is that uh, ancient Jews held that there were 613 commandments in the Torah. So that's basically what he was being asked. What's the greatest commandment? And did he say, oh, they're all equally important? No. He said, the greatest is Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Love, loving God. And he said, the second is like it. And he actually draws that from the book of Leviticus, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. There's a lot of troubling stuff in Leviticus, if you haven't heard. And, but so, and Jesus didn't say it's all equally important. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, those are the two greatest commandments. Similarly, I think Paul did that. It's a really interesting and productive thing to do. Some of you may even recall this from studies we did when I was here. To go back and look at how Paul interpreted scripture. Because what a lot of people do is they just read Paul, but they don't actually hold it up side by side when he's quoting the Hebrew Bible. Paul does some wild stuff. Like if you go back and look, you're like, I don't see how that follows. And that's because Paul was a spirit-filled interpreter. He gave himself great leeway to interpret with the spirit. And he said to the church in Galatians, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, how do you know if you're you know, interpreting with the Spirit, he said, you'll know it by the fruit of the Spirit. Is there more love? Is there more peace? Is there more patience? Is there more kindness, more goodness, more faithfulness, more gentleness, more self-control? He said, against such things, there is no law. That's how you know if you're interpreting with the Spirit. And if you're getting away from the Spirit, it's when you're doing the opposite of all those things. More hate, more division, right? That's when, like, you've, by your fruit, you will know them, Right? Now, if any of you are thinking perhaps of times in the past, when I can think of this, times in my, when I've done this, when you may not have used, you now see in retrospect, the best tool for the interpretive toolbox for a given, and you may have done some harm. Uh, I invite you to be gentle with yourself. As the saying goes, we have to give up all hope of a better past. We're just not going to get it. You can just give up all hope of a better past. We cannot change the times that we sided with greed, with hatred, with delusion. But in each new present moment, I promise you, there is a new chance to side with love. As Jesus said to Peter, if you love me, feed my lambs. If you love me, tend my sheep. 
If you love me, feed my sheep. To feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, visiting the sick and imprisoned. We are called to love the hell out of this world. To do all we can for as long as we can, that it might be just a little more on earth as it is in heaven. So I invite you to take a moment right now in real time to pause and ask yourself. Ask with real curiosity. Like, think, you, think about it like when you lose your keys. You're like, where are my keys? Like, I really don't know, right? Ask with real, that kind of real curiosity. What is love calling me to do in this moment? Just breathe that in for a second. Just dropping that into your consciousness. What is love calling me to do? What is the next step love is calling me to take? Because we have real consequential choices to make every day in this life. So why not choose love? As you listen within yourself, allow yourself to potentially be surprised with the answer that emerges. In this moment, what is love calling me to do? What would it look like to side with love? May we skillfully draw from all the tools at our disposal so that when our time comes, it can be said of us, they sided with love. In a hurting and polarized world, they sided with peace, with patience, with kindness, with goodness, with gentleness, with self-control. They sided with love. May it be so, and blessed be.
see the world. 